and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our Father, Part 7 of 7. When I was in college, I was in a work-study program for the YWCA. I drove a minivan and picked up kids from school, brought them to the program at the Y, and then took them home afterward. I assisted in the after-school program, but the van rides are what I remember most. That is when the kids were animated, giggling, shouting, and sometimes crying. They always wanted to listen to Taylor Swift and begged me to sing along. One day, one of the teenage boys got in, and once all the doors were shut, shouted, The Lord tempted me today! He waited for all of us to stop laughing and ask him to go on, good little storyteller that he was, before he continued, My friend offered me a brownie, only it was one of them weed brownies. Last night, I promised God that I was going to take a break from weed and sugar. He be up in here tempting me today. Does the Lord tempt us? James, who was a close relative and follower of Christ, wrote in the New Testament, Let no one, when he is tempted, say, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. We are to submit to being led away from temptation rather than submitting to temptation. We need to be led because we do not know where we are going. Remember the third part of the prayer is thy will be done, which means the plan is not our own. Paul put it this way in his second letter to the Corinthians, for we live by faith, not by sight. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. At first pass, the wording seems embarrassingly clunky. We've had our best people working on this for 2,000 years, and it does not roll off the tongue. But I've come to appreciate the structure and word choice of this prayer. Just as the first line would be more succinct as, Our Heavenly Father, it would also be less descriptive, reducing heaven to an adjective instead of a noun. Our Father who art in heaven has gravitas. It captures the separateness and loftiness of God. For if he is not just heavenly, but in heaven, then he is above all and in all, the stars and the created universe. And if we understand that, then we cry, hallowed be thy name. It would be simpler grammatically to say, do not lead us into temptation. However, then the speaker would be giving God an order and the phrasing would emphasize do not. Whereas the traditional phrasing emphasizes lead us. Remember, we are praying this prayer along with billions of others on the face of the earth right now. And it has been prayed by those before us and will be prayed by those after us. The preposition into instead of to is also well chosen. Temptation is a place, a state that envelops, surrounds, and is entered into. Another reason I appreciate the phrasing, lead us not into temptation, but, is that it forces me to think about what I am saying because I must untangle the meaning from the word order. The words are like buoys in a no-wake zone, advising me to slow down, which is what is needed at the end of a prayer. Deliver us from evil. The literal translation is deliver us from the evil one. The prayer has a different ending and beginning, our father versus the evil one. It creates a stark contrast between good and evil, life and death.
In Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the 12 disciples, he tells them, therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Many people mix this up and are as gentle as serpents and wise as doves, which is a horrible combination. This is an injunction to be wise to the ways of evil, not to practice evil, but to understand that it exists and how to overcome it. God created the world with words in Genesis 1, which I discussed in a previous post. Now let's look at Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. How does the serpent, who is craftier than all the other animals, deceive the first humans? How is Eden undone? How is the curse brought into creation? How do death and suffering enter life? Through words. The serpent used words, not force, not a trap, but words to get Adam and Eve to commit original sin. Kids intuitively grasp the important part of this story because what sticks out to them is that the snake is talking. That is a big deal. Adults gloss over that detail in the story, in part because it is a huge inconsistency with how we understand the world to operate. Animals do not talk. Adults do a subtle shift and read serpent as Satan because we understand Satan being able to talk. I'm not saying that the serpent was not say Satan, but what I am saying is that what the story describes is a serpent. That is significant, something that we understand not to be able to speak is speaking Maybe something that we do not understand is happening. Like, don't gloss over it. Words are being used to destroy the world. How is that communicated? Words are put in the least expected place, the mouth of a serpent, and behold, paradise is lost. Words have the power to create and destroy. That is the genius of the Genesis story. The word of God is the logos that is, was, and will be. It created and sustains the cosmos. Pay attention. The snake speaks. Did God really say you shall not? The serpent gets the first humans to question the word of God. They break the word of God and then all hell breaks loose. What is the summation of evil? Death. Death is the fruit of evil, and the seeds of death are doubt. But that is not the end of the story. 
The word of the serpent corrupted creation, but it did not destroy it. God tells Adam, Eve, and the serpent that a hero born of woman will one day rise and crush the head of the serpent. The one who taught us this prayer is that hero. Deliver us from the evil one. Prayer is the word spoken over your life. At the beginning of this teaching in Matthew, Christ says, go into your private room, literally in your room within your room, and pray in this way. Speak these words in your heart of hearts. That is well and good, some say, but don't actions speak louder than words? First, would you want to be married to someone who only acted out love and never said, I love you? Second, words are how we think. Do you want people to act without thinking? Third, words are how we explain our actions and put them into context. You can deprive a child and a dog of food for 12 hours, and the child will understand that it is for her good while the dog whines next to its dish. The preparation for surgery is the same for both, but one suffers less because of words. Finally, the true logos causes creation. God said, let there be light, and there was light, which is why I can write this, and you can read it. You and I are still learning how to speak the word. When we do, we participate in creation. Dr. Jordan B. Peterson said, It is my firm belief that the best way to fix the world, a handyman's dream if ever there was one, is to fix yourself. Things said are easier done. How do you change the world? You change yourself. How do you change yourself? In the beginning was the word. That is how it starts. Go into your private room. Speak the logos into your life. Lastly, we cannot forget amen. Amen and hallelujah are two Hebrew words that have survived translation after translation. Amen means verily, so be it, truth. In the Bible, it is used to affirm oaths, offer praise, accept blessings, and end prayers. There is a Jewish teaching that amen said with the proper concentration can nullify negative decrees and open the Garden of Eden. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. A brief note on today's line, which separates Catholic and Orthodox Christians, for whom this is the last line of the prayer, from Protestants who add a doxology, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. It is beautiful and biblical, and sometimes I pray it, and if you choose to pray it that way, God bless. 
The reason I chose not to go into detail about it here is because the earliest manuscripts do not contain it. As such, some translations of the Bible include it and some do not. Also, I wanted this series to be seven posts because seven is a holy number, but also because seven is a manageable number. I committed seven weeks to this journey. Like any good journey, it has been memorable and I have been grateful for the company, but I am also looking forward to a rest at the end. Thank you for reading and or listening to these posts.